This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Performance in the workplace is something that every company is focusing on even more right now. And while companies are focusing on it, it is the individual employee that ends up being responsible for it in most cases and looking for those ways to improve it. But a new book suggests that the key to better performance may be focusing on the things that you do well and not so much worrying about the rest. Eight Steps to High Performance is the name of the book. It's written by Mark Efron, and he joins us right now. Mark, welcome. Good morning, Dan. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Uh, Part of this would seem to lay out the expectations that both the employer but also the employee should have, correct? Well, and Dan, you make a great point. Uh, The individual employee at the end of the day is responsible for their own performance. And while we certainly hope our companies are going to help, hopefully you don't outsource your performance to your employer. But a good bit of people's performance, you mentioned, is kind of predictable or predicted in, in a variety of factors, which it seems like are not necessarily linked to the actual work that they do. Well, there's two things to think about uh, if you want to be a higher performer. And to your point, one is there are a lot of individual characteristics that we have our intelligence, parts of our personality, things that are part of our upbringing, our background, that we really just can't change. They do either contribute to or sometimes detract from performance. And that's about 50% of what influences how successful we are at work. But the other 50% is completely controllable by us. And that's why I lay out in the book is what does the hardcore academic science say is conclusively linked to higher individual performance at work? So the answer to that question is? Well, uh, there are a few things, um, and the few things matter more than others. I'll, uh, I won't hit all the eight steps right yep. now. I'm sure we'll get to them. Yep. But if, if you only had, say, two things that you could do, Mark, I'm a busy guy. I can't do all eight steps. Which two should I start with? The number one most powerful factor is setting fewer, bigger goals. Okay. The science yeah. around that is unbelievably strong. It sounds so obvious. Most of us set goals at work. But what the science would say is most of us don't stretch those goals anywhere near as much as we could. So there's a ton of great science that says that we respond to bigger goals with more effort, mm-hmm. meaning most of the time a bigger goal is going to deliver a bigger result. But if we have 10 big goals, we're going to kill ourselves. So how right. can you focus on the few things that matter? So. I'm a big fan of the number three, three really big, challenging goals. And one way of getting there is simply saying, what would it take to double last year's performance? As ridiculous as a sentiment as that might sound like, it's a great way to say, you know what, I'd probably have to eliminate X or Y or learn A or B. And it really focuses us on what are the big levers of my contribution at work. How prevalent is the problem of having too many goals right now? And I mention that because... You know, thinking personally, you know, I'm doing a radio show. I got, you know, all the, the, the different uh, stuff outside of, uh, of work in my life that I'm doing. And I think there, we're in such a hectic, hectic lifestyle to begin with that maybe we just carry on that hectic lifestyle outside of the office into the office and we try, we're trying to do too much. Absolutely. And I think that's the difference in 
stuff that we have to do versus goals. We all have lots of stuff that we have to do. Even at work, there are a hundred different things that our boss wants us to deliver. But there are likely for most people two, three, maybe four really significant contributions they're going to make or can make during the year. That's what your goal should be. And that's where most organizations go wrong. Well, this is a book about individual performance. Uh, Our consulting firm works with some of the world's largest global companies. Most are really horrible at goal setting. And one of the primary things they do wrong is list 10, 12, 15 goals for some good and some not good reasons. So so take us us through how you came up with with these eight goals to begin with. Uh, well, uh, it started off with a long list of things that I thought might matter. So I've always been a big student of the science of human performance. And so about two years ago, I said, why isn't there a book that simply consolidates everything we know is proven about human performance? Uh, I couldn't find one. So I thought, well, what do I think is true? What do I know from the science is true? Mm-hmm. Started with a very long list and then proceeded to read about 2,000 academic articles. That's not a lot of fun. Um, but trying to get to what is conclusively proven. And when I say conclusively proven, I mean belt and suspenders, level of confidence, meta-analysis, uh, all peer-reviewed academic journal published articles, and it really boiled down to these eight factors that have the strongest proof. And along the way, what I found was there are a lot of things that a lot of us take for granted that actually are not true, and I call that out in the last chapter around avoiding distractions. All right, so let's go uh, through some of these. You mentioned uh, setting fewer big goals at the top, behaving to perform, and, and you're discussing behaviors, which I think is it's it's kind of always been a, a an important component, maybe not thought about enough, is that behaviors really do impact success. Absolutely. Think of someone that you know who is a great performer with bad behaviors. At some point, they're dragging those behaviors behind them like an anchor. Uh, That anchor is going to dig in and it's going to halt their career. So behaving to perform isn't necessarily about being a good corporate citizen. That's a great baseline. We should all be great corporate citizens. But it's understanding what are the few behaviors I can engage in that are really going to juice my performance a little bit. And what we describe in the book is – while there's no one right model, there are a few models that have been studied and, and validated very well. We talk about uh, transformational leadership, which, despite the name, doesn't necessarily involve transformation, and what we call performance-driving leadership as another way of just getting a lot of work done. And I think the challenge for a lot of employees is their company has a leadership model, a behavior model, and it's probably filled with a lot of lovely stuff. Right. But which of those behaviors really increase performance? You talk uh, the next uh, step being grow yourself faster, which is interesting because for for every company, growth is the ultimate goal. The quarterly statement, the bottom line, the, the increase in sales numbers. It feels like maybe not enough people think about actually the growth that you need personally. Well, and let's draw a parallel. Would you ever set a growth goal that sounded something like we should sell more product? I mean, that sounds a little bit vague, yet if right. you look at most individual development plans, say, they say things like be more strategic. 
So part of the challenge is, or part of the opportunity is if we structure our individual development plans with the same level of specificity that we structure our corporate growth plans and development plans, we'd probably find it a lot easier to understand where are we today and where do we need to be. And one of the things that we lay out that I lay out in the book very clearly is start with what I call the from to. And the from to is a very basic way of saying, you know, if Dan is our vice president, we want him to advance. Dan, here's how we see you today. Here's how we yeah. need to see you going forward. Yeah. And that level of crispness and clarity is absent in 98% of development plans around the world. You talk also, uh, one of the chapters is called Maximize Your Fit, which is very interesting because I think there is a disconnect in many cases, even though we are seeing more and more people kind of understanding the, the, the need to have a level of fitness uh, of what that not only means for your personal life, but what it can also mean from a benefit standpoint in your professional career. Sure. And actually, um, let's talk about fit in, in two different contexts. There is fit as in fitness, and there is fit as in how do you fit with your organization. Yeah. And in the Maximize Fit chapter, what we talk about is the fact that organizations are evolving faster than ever. And as they evolve, they're going to have different capability needs. And the mantra that, that we always use in our organization is companies evolve faster than people evolve. Yeah. Companies evolve faster than people evolve. And so it's really important that we keep an eye on where is our company going and what capabilities are going to make me a high performer in the future. Because just because I'm great at something today doesn't mean that those same capabilities are going to define great in the future. And are there times where the, the, the fact that people are trying to fit into the company where the the the, the the abilities that they bring forward to a firm, sometimes the company should, at, 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 in some cases, fit within the, the, the structure of the person because they can bring something to the table. So it sounds like what you're talking about is if there's someone who has kind of a very unique skill set, yeah. should we shape a, a role or an opportunity or, or around Or part them? of it, yeah. Yeah, well, short answer, Absolutely. Um, that's probably a smaller number of folks than we might imagine right. because there, there aren't so many folks with those unique skill sets. But as an organization, should you be looking for unique special talent who can add immediate value? Absolutely. And should you be really flexible uh, in how you structure their role? Absolutely. The one I, I mentioned before uh, in, in promoting you coming on was the next one that you have in line, which is fake it. And I found that interesting, obviously, seeing it. It's one thing to see it in print, but it's another thing to see the reasoning behind it. Take us into that. Uh, it's interesting. Actually, The um, this was published, or an excerpt from this uh, chapter was published as the LinkedIn weekend essay last weekend. And I spent most of the weekend responding to hundreds of angry comments about faking and how horrible it is to do that. And uh, actually, what's behind this is simply saying, uh, to the point I just mentioned, companies change faster than people change. Yeah. There are going to be times when we're going to need to behave in a way that does not feel comfortable. And this is not about flexing your style a little bit or learning a new skill. This might be saying, hey, I've always worked in a very um, kind of nice, calm environment. We're now in hyper growth mode where I'm going to need to lead people in a more aggressive way, make tougher people decisions. That's not me. So you can either say that's not me, which is a recipe for low performance, or you can say, 
okay, if I were going to be that person, what behaviors would I need to fake? So essentially, you're being put into a different, let's say you're an actor, you're being put into a different role. Great. How would you need to act to be successful in that role? And faking doesn't mean you are going to be a fake person or you're going to try and permanently change who you are. It's saying your company might have a unique need that, that demands that you uh, behave in a unique way for a short period of time. You're going to be a higher performer if you learn how to fake that behavior for a while. You also talk about avoiding distractions, which I think at times now, because we are so busy and because we are uh, can be you know so uh, inundated with information and data coming forward, uh, that avoiding distractions is probably as big a challenge now as it's ever been before. Absolutely. When you only have so many hours in the day, how many hours do you want to waste pursuing tactics that are simply not going to work? And that's a challenge for a lot of folks who aren't IO psychologists and who aren't going to sort through uh, all this new material with a, a very skeptical eye. If a, a eminent business school professor writes a book that says that uh, if you stand on your head, you're going to be a higher performer, a decent number of people will start standing on their heads. The challenge is that behind a lot of these books is very little science yeah. or uh, is relabeled science. And we talk about some things like you know, focusing on your strengths or authentic leadership or, uh, or other things that kind of sound good in concept. Yeah. But when you dig behind them, there's just no science to back them up. So how do you see some companies, and maybe you have specific examples, how do you see some companies really kind of understanding a lot of these concepts and maybe seeing them out play out within the employees of their companies? Uh, so in terms of the eight steps? Yeah. Uh, well, I think a few things. Um, and again, we work with a lot of large organizations around the world. I'll use an example of a very large pharma company that has done a great job of transitioning from many goals to few. Uh, back to our, our point about it's the most powerful thing that we can do to increase our performance. Right. They recognize that. And they, this organization had, a, as many, many pharma firms do, a massive innovation agenda. And what they realized was that people were scattered in their approach to innovation. Uh, and they said, we're going to have three big goals for everyone. We know that means that a lot of things will fall off your plate, but we're going to, one, help people understand how to set big goals. We're going to help them to translate a lot of tasks and activities they do into something bigger, more meaningful, and we're going to hold them primarily responsible for just those three big things. And part of that is simply training people in how to do this better. It's not complicated, but people do need a bit of instruction. More importantly, it's holding them accountable. This is where it falls down in most companies, holding them accountable for the quality of those goals. So somebody has to look at those. In this organization, it was uh, the leader and the leader of leaders is going to look at those goals and say, one, that feels stretchy enough. So it's a big enough goal that we think it's going to drive higher performance. It's aligned to the agenda we all agreed on, which was innovation, and it's a very well-written goal. So I know what you're going to do, when you're going to do it by, and how I'm going to measure it. But is it also linked in to the fact that, and we've talked about this on our show here a couple of times, is that in the business culture today, we see more and more companies that want to have teams together to work on specific projects. And by doing that, you have more people focusing on one idea. Let's say you have a team of 15 people working on X project. By having that, what you've avoided is having uh, 15 people looking at 15 different projects. 
and what that would mean from a performance and a goal setting standpoint is I probably need to have both individual goals, but also team uh, behavior goals. Right. So part of this is I'm still an individual contributing to that team. I should be held accountable for my individual contribution. But what I prefer to see instead of a team goal, although that's not harmful, I'd much rather see people measured on good teaming behaviors. Am I collaborating with my team members? Am I sharing? Am I helping? Am I contributing to ideas? Because I find it's much easier to pair those two. What exactly did I do? And did I behave properly and helpfully and in a performance-driving way with others? We find that really allows a great mix. How aware do you think people are in general about the strengths that they have, either recognizing A, B, and C that they know they can do well or thinking that they can do something very well, and maybe they're not as proficient at it. Yeah, Dan, we are all wonderfully delusional about our, <laughs> our strengths and our weaknesses. Of course we are. Uh, yeah, the, the science is unbelievably clear. We, uh, we are the least accurate observers of ourselves. <laughs> Everyone around us knows us better than we know ourselves. Um, and that's why, and, and I'm sure many of your guests have mentioned this before, self-knowledge, self-awareness is key. You're not going to be able to fit with your company. You're not going to know what behaviors to focus on unless you know where you stand today. How do people perceive you? And for a lot of folks, that's really scary. I don't want to ask because I don't want to know. But the, a great starting place there is just to say, everybody who sits around me can get better at at least one thing. I know that. Therefore, I can probably get better at one thing. Why don't I just ask some people I trust, hey, if I'm going to be a better leader or manager or innovator, what's the one thing I might be able to do a little bit differently going forward? Right. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number if you would like to join in your comments and questions. We're joined by Mark Efron, who is uh, the author of the book Eight Steps to High Performance: Focus on What You Can and Ignore the Rest. I, I, playing off of that for a second, Mark, I, I think at times it's incredibly hard for people to ignore some of the things that maybe they, they should. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is what we mentioned earlier around these. Uh, I call them the get-rich-quick schemes for management, where someone comes out with a juicy little book, and it, when we read it, it says, hey, you know what, I can actually be a higher performer in a tenth of the time and with a tenth of the effort than I thought. I'm just going to do that. Those are the things that we should ignore. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we should ignore is kind of those, those juicy little tidbits that actually don't help us to be high performers. But it's also helpful to put things that are in the past in the past, right. meaning um, there are a lot of biases out there. And those biases may have affected your career. They may still be affecting your career. Right. You should certainly fight against those biases, but... What can you do right now as an individual across these eight steps to be a higher performer? So no matter whether your parents gave you more or less intelligence, a great personality or a weaker personality, your socioeconomic background, you can't do a darned thing about any of those. Right. So given where you are today, what would you like to control across these eight steps? One of the other things that you bring up is uh, called connect with the right people. And take us into that for a few minutes because uh, the connections that you build within business, obviously there there's more ways to connect with people now than ever before, but they, they still remain to be you know a very com important component of achieving that, that high-level performance. Absolutely, Dan. And this tends to be the 
introverts Achilles heel. Uh, introverts often are not, or they aren't naturally wired to connect with others. And so what I find when I work with folks who have a more introverted personality is they need to be much more planful about how to do this. And that feels false and in, ingenuine that, well, I should have a plan for how to meet people. Yes, right. you should have a plan both inside and outside the company. And one of the things that we recommend in the book, or I recommend in the book is very clearly map out the strengths of your relationship. Uh, in the company. Make a list of your key peers. Make a list of the high performers above you. And on a simple one to five scale, how strong is my relationship with them? And for anybody who's a three or lower, you should have a coffee, have a lunch just to get to know them. Yeah. And as uncomfortable as that might feel, I guarantee you, you're, you're going to be a higher performer when you have that stronger network and people know more about you. Both current and prior jobs. Uh, sorry, say again? Both current and prior jobs. Not only just the people that you're working with in your current position, your current company, but ones you've worked with in the past. Absolutely. Uh, that external network, again, science would suggest people with a stronger external network are going to move faster through their careers for some very obvious reasons. And again, that may feel uncomfortable, but to your point, there's lots of new ways of networking now. I'm a massive introvert. LinkedIn has saved my life. I have, yeah. I don't know, 25,000 contacts on LinkedIn. It's really easy to, to make a fast friend there. And so part of it is use tools like that if for some reason you're not naturally inclined to reach out. But also, most business leaders are fairly receptive if you reach out to them and say, hey, I don't know anything about materials engineering. You're an expert in that. Right. I would love just to spend a few minutes with you hearing more about how that field works. Well, playing off of what you just said with your, with your own example and, and using LinkedIn, how do you think digital is kind of impacting these eight steps that, that you lay out here? Uh, well, I think digital can certainly play into all these, I think, uh, in a few different ways. One is that uh, it should help with the connection pieces that we've just talked about. Yeah, yeah. So use these tools, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or, or Slack or whatever your favorite tool is, to, to build relationships with people you might naturally not have the opportunity to, um, to interact with. Um, but also, there are some other digital tools that can be very helpful, like sleep trackers in our commitment. Yeah. Your, or commit your body chapter, what I talk about is science is unbelievably clear that the quality and quantity of our sleep contributes to high performance at work. And it's difficult for any of us to guess what the quality of our sleep is. So a tool as simple as a sleep tracker can be a meaningful tool to help you to higher performance. I, I would think, though, when, when you think about the, the last uh, step, number eight, avoiding distractions, that's where digital can actually play the negative side of this, correct? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I have um, I've opened in front of me a couple of browser windows for for things that hit my e inbox this morning that are really cool articles, but distracted me from doing other more productive things. Yeah. Um, and I think the challenge is that when we see an idea come across uh, our screen about being a higher performer that feels too good to be true, we should be skeptical consumers. If it yeah. sounds too good to be true, if it offers a shortcut that just sounds remarkable, it 
probably isn't quite what it sounds like. We should be really skeptical consumers of that information. Mark, great uh, having you on the show. Great book. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, Dan. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Mark Efron, the author of the book, Eight Steps to High Performance. Focus on what you can change and ignore the rest. Great having him on the show. Book, by the way, is uh, out in bookstores and available online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 